All right, the reading today is James 5, um, verses 13 through 18. Is anyone of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. So for the last several months, we've been in the book of James. We're actually going to finish up that study next week, uh, as you can tell from where we are today. Now, uh, it would be easy in James 5, in these few verses, to lose sight of the forest for the trees, and I don't want us to do that. So here's the call of these verses. The call of every one of these commands is a call toward intimacy with God complete trust in God no matter what season we are going through in life. Are you happy? You should come to God. Are you troubled? You should come to God. Are you sick? You should come to God. Are you well? You should come to God. And you can come to God in any season of your life and trust Him. So let's just walk through it. He says first that we should pray to God when we're hurting emotionally. Here's the way James says it. He says, are any of you in trouble? You should pray. And the, f- the phrase there, in trouble, literally means distressed. So are you troubled? Well, you should take your trouble to God. And make no mistake about it, friends, before it is anything else, prayer is intimacy with the Almighty. It is an invitation not only into fellowship and a relationship with Him, but also an opportunity to see Him begin to work in and through your life. So prayer is not a duty. It is a delight. It is a gift for the people of God to commune with their adoptive, loving, merciful, and good heavenly Father. Now, a couple things I just want to walk through with prayer. So if you're going to become a person of prayer, if you're going to grow your prayer life, just a couple thoughts. Number one, and it sounds counterintuitive, prayer needs to be planned. You need to plan it. Some of you are like, well, man, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound very spiritual. Well, I can tell you this. I plan dates with my wife. I plan family vacations. We plan for what matters, right? Uh, Some of us uh, get up in the morning and we plan our day. Some of us even get, uh, get up on Sunday or Monday and we daytime or plan or phone our whole week, right? Because we know, look, if I don't put it in my calendar, if I don't plan for it, it is not going to get done. And then the second thing I would say is this, you got to put yourself in a place when you're praying where you just remove the distractions. So listen, it's going to be really hard to pray with your iPhone dinging in front of you. 
It's going to be really hard to pray if you're watching a movie. It's going to be really hard to pray in a tight window of time where you know you've got a lot to do throughout the day, right? And so you go, well, okay, I've got five minutes. I'll just pray. You're not going to do it. You know why? Because you're going to be distracted by the thought of all the things waiting on you that you have to do. So you just have to eliminate distractions, right? The third thing. Seek out other people to pray with. This is one of the commands of this passage. He calls us to pray individually, but he also says, look, there are times when you need others to pray with you and for you. And we'll come back to those in just a minute. But these are people that you will learn from. You will pick up their hunger and thirst for prayer. That will begin to rub off on you. And then fourthly, Prayer lists are hugely important. So for decades, my wife Jackie has kept a journal. And so she can, thumb, she can go back to that journal. We just did this together recently. And she was able to list so many answers to prayer that I had forgotten about because I don't journal. Now, I do pray off lists, but it was really cool to be able to go back with her and look at all the way God had answered just dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of prayers over the year. Uh, so I make lists. I, I have a friends list. I have a family list. I have a personal list. Just things that, you know, I'm praying for. You have to pray off lists. And then finally, and this is huge, learn some of the prayers of Scripture. Read through the book of Ephesians. Pay close attention to some of the prayers that are found there. Because um, here's a problem. Right? A lot of times, if, if we're not familiar with the prayers of Scriptures, we tend to pray very generic prayers. Hey, God, just bless so-and-so. And, and if you ask anything beyond, well, God, just bless them, we don't know how to pray or what to pray. Whereas if we're familiar with the prayers of Scripture, we can say things like, hey, God, give them wisdom. Give them spiritual insight. God, renew their insight man. I mean, just on and on and on. We, so no, praying scripture back to God allows us to be more dynamic because we can pray with more specifics, right? And then the second thing is when we're praying God's word back to him, it pleases the heart of God to hear his words offered back up to him. And so when you can pray scriptural prayers for people, there's tremendous, tremendous power, you know, in that. In fact, let me just uh, tell you a little story to help you kind of grasp the, the power of prayer. So there was a, a minister and a bus driver who were standing in line, you know, to get into heaven. And I don't know why, but Peter always seems to be the one that's doing gate duty in heaven, right? And so the bus driver approached uh, Peter first, and Peter said to him, I understand you were a bus driver. The guy nods, and he says, well, do you see that mansion on that hill over there? That's for you. Well, the minister, he puffed up at that point. He's like, wow, like if a bus driver got a, a mansion on a mountain, get you know, I wonder what I'm going to get. So the pastor approached Peter and Peter said to the pastor, I understand you were a minister. And he said, yeah, I, I was. And he said, well, okay, then you see that shack over there down in that little valley? Well, like the minister was so taken back, he just interrupted Peter. He said, 
Peter, what are you talking about? I, I, I shared the gospel. I, I preached the Bible Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Surely I deserve more than a shack. I mean, why does a bus driver get a mansion on a mountain and I get a shack in a valley? Well, sadly, Peter said, well, it seems that while you preached, people slept. But while he drove, people prayed. They prayed and prayed and prayed, right? That's just the power, you know, of prayer. Just great, great power in prayer. And then James continues, he says, look, if you're in trouble, you should pray. But you know when else you should pray? When you're happy. When you're happy. Here's how he says it. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. So are things going well for you? Well, you should sing songs of praise to him. And this is another form of prayer. Thanksgiving and praise are a form of prayer. And I love this statement because there's nothing more intimate for people than music. I mean, think about the music that you listen to. Most of the songs that we listen to um, are songs that kind of lift up the value of relationships, like whether it be like romantic love or sex or the importance of relationships. In our culture, we put songs to music around that. In fact, if you're a couple here and I were to ask you, are there any songs you'd like? Probably you would say, well, there's actually a song. It's kind of our song. And when we hear that song, you know, it just reminds us of the importance of our relationship. Well, listen, every believer, every follower of Jesus should have a song that when we sing it to God, God would say, that's our song. That's what James is getting at here. He's just saying, you know, like if you're happy, if, if God's blessing you and doing good things in your life, thank God for that. Praise God for that. And there's such uh, importance in the value. The value of praise can't be overstated. First, praise builds up the body. This is one of the reasons that we uh, sing on Sunday mornings together, right? Because it builds up the body. It unifies us around the character and the nature of God. And that is so important. But not only that, praise prepares me individually for trials. It teaches me how to look up in the midst of a trial. Praise helps me not confuse life with God. Life may be unfair. Life may be hard. But God is just. He, God is fair. And God is good. And praise reminds me of that. And then finally, praise grows my gratitude. It lifts my perspective from this earth to the heavenly realms. And then James goes into another season of life that we should pray through. Look what he says. Is any one of you sick? So, hey, are you troubled? Are you happy? Are you sick? Well, if you're sick, you should call the elders of the church to pray over you and anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. And so what James is saying is he's saying, look, when, when there's times in life where you should call other people around you 
like you just can't pray for yourself. You need to call other people to pray with you and to pray for you. In this case, he says, it's the elders of the church. Now, we just got to live out this passage this past week with a family in our church. It's so beautiful. Every time we get to do this, our elders came. We actually did a house call. We came to this person's house. We anointed them with oil in the name of the Lord, and we just prayed better days for them, better health for them, for God's security for them. It is a joy. That is one of the joys and one of the privileges of being an elder in this church. And here's something else that this command means. James' assumption and the assumption of every writer in the New Testament is that if you're a follower of Jesus, you belong to a local church. In other words, if you don't belong to a church, there are no elders for you to call. This is so important to understand. This is kind of an assumption of the New Testament, that if you're a follower of Jesus, you belong somewhere. So in the end, what should be happening in my life and yours is that we should be a community for one another that's dialed in to one another's needs so that when you have a need, especially if you're, uh, you have a physical need, you should be able to call the elders of the church to pray uh, with you and for you. And, and here's just the principle here. Sometimes it's not enough to just pray to God. Sometimes you need to call other people to pray with you and for you, to be a community of prayer with you. And so James is saying, look, in every season of your life, you can commune with the live of God, no matter, uh, with the, in the love of God, no matter what is happening in your life, whether you're happy, whether you're troubled, whether you're sick, whether you're well, you should invite God into all of that. And this is why one of our values as a church comes right out of this passage. Here's the way we articulate this. We say, you know We want to be a people, we want to be a community, down to a man, down to a woman, we want to be a people that will lead with prayer and then respond with worship. So so we're going to pray about whatever is on the dashboard of our life, and then we're going to trust God that he's working in that prayer. And no matter how God responds to that prayer, even if he says no to that prayer, we're going to respond with worship, believing that God is good. In fact, this is the way we articulate that a little more deeply. We say, we will pray with bold expectation. And we will worship with great celebration in response to God's goodness. And more than anything else, what James is saying in these passages is, listen, if you're troubled, go to God, he's good. If you're happy, go to God, he's good. If you're sick, go to God, he's good. If you're well, go to God, he's good. You can go to God. 24-7 because he is always good. And then look at the promise that James notes. He says, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. We're going to come back to that. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. So notice he's connecting sin 
and sickness here. In fact, he does it again in the next verse. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And here's something else I don't want us to miss. James talks about not just the importance of prayer in the life of a believer, not just the importance of praise, but the importance of confession. Like being honest about what you're going through. Taking the darkness in your life that you want to hide, that you want to pretend isn't there, that those things that you're ashamed of, and bringing them out into the light. And so here's the idea. James is saying, look, if you want to be forgiven for your sin, talk to God about it. He'll forgive you. But if you want to be healed of your sin, like if you want to overcome your sin, if you want to be set free from your sin, you have to invite other people into that. You have to ask, you have to ask them to pray with you and for you. Confession, not just to God, but to others, is the secret sauce of Christianity. It just is, right? It's, that's where power is found in the Christian life, in community with other people. Um, and I also want you to notice, I pointed this out, that James links sin and sickness. Now, why does he do that? Why does he do that? Well, in Jesus' day, Jewish people believed that sickness and disability were almost always the result of sin. And they believed that for a very, very specific reason, which we'll talk about in just a minute. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you to a story in the New Testament that makes this clear. Um, but before this, I just want to give you some background. I want to tell you a story. So there's a woman in another part of the world who finds out she's going to have a baby. She's thrilled. She and her husband are uh, just overwhelmed. They tell their friends. They thank God. But after having a baby boy, this woman begins to realize that something is off with her baby. And he doesn't seem to respond to visual cues, you know, in the way that they would like. And eventually, they realize that their baby boy can't see. And unfortunately, they live in a part of the world where there are no resources, there's no classes, there's no books on Braille, there's no help, there's no disability and so they know he's going to grow up. He's going to have no other children to play with. And because of the day they live in, they know he's not going to get married. They know he's not going to be able to hold down a job. And therefore, they know he's never going to be able to have children. He's not going to be able to provide them with grandchildren. And as they get older, they begin to worry about him. Like, what's going to happen to our boy when we die? And eventually, they do die. And their, their boy is now a young man, and he has to resort to begging. Again, there's no social security, right? There's no disability. There are no parents there to care for him. And so the only way through that is to beg. And every day there are people all around him, but nobody notices him. Until one day, Jesus does notice him. And his story is found in John chapter 9. And we're just going to look at the first few verses. 
So uh, as he went along, this is Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. This is that young man. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So that was their assumption, that because he was blind, somebody was responsible. It had to be him, it had to be his parents, but it had to be somebody. And we'll come back to why they assume that in a minute. Neither, but here's Jesus' response. What Jesus is saying is, it's a new day. There's a new sheriff in town. Neither this man sinned, nor his parents. In other words, Jesus says, nobody sinned. Well, this would have blown their mind. Uh, He says, this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. In other words, I want you to watch what I'm about to do. I'm going to heal this man of his blindness And the Son of God is going to be lifted up. The Son of God is going to be glorified in this man's healing. Now, why did they assume that if someone was blind or sick, that it was a result of sin? Well, it was because of the covenant that they lived under. They lived under something called the Old Covenant. And in that covenant, God promised the nation, that if they would obey him, he would bless them, he would keep them healthy, he would keep them safe, Uh, but that if they disobeyed him, he would remove his protection and no longer bless them and keep them safe. So clearly, if there was somebody who was blind, they had done something wrong, right? Or God would have prevented that or kept that from happening. Said they believed that as a direct result of the covenant that they lived under. And what a lot of people don't realize is the the reason for the nation of Israel to obey the old covenant is completely different. They had completely different motives than Christians have for obeying the New Testament covenant. The motives are totally different. We don't obey God to get him to bless us or get him to protect us. We don't obey God for what he will do. We obey God for what he has already done. We obey God because he's already blessed us by sending his son Jesus to suffer, bleed, and die on a cross. We, we don't obey God to get God to do things for us. We obey God because of what he's already done for us and the love that he's already shown us. And so we obey him because we want to please him because he's made us sons and he's made us daughters, right? And as sons and daughters, we want to please, we long to please our heavenly father. Just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And then there's kind of a second observation I want to make about these verses. And that's this. So James says, look, if you call the elders and they come and pray and someone is sick, now remember he's tied sickness to sin. And someone's sick and the elders pray, he's going to raise them up. So does that mean that every time the elders come and pray for somebody who is sick and maybe even dying, that God's going to raise them up? Well, the answer has to be found by looking at the rest of Scripture, right? And so in in the Bible, there are four kinds of sickness, four kinds. 
James, James is talking about three of the four. And I'm going to try to prove that to you by going to another story of healing. Uh, this time Jesus isn't going to heal a stranger. This time Jesus is going to heal a friend. In fact, it's someone that Jesus deeply loved. And, and many of you know this, but in John 11, this healing we're about to look at, uh, the shortest verse in the entire Bible is in John chapter 11. Jesus arrives he finds his friend uh, dead. And, and we're told, the shortest verse in the Bible, John 11, it says, Jesus wept. He wept over his friend. He wept over what death does to human beings. He was deeply, deeply moved. So let's pick up the story in the early part of John chapter 11. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. This was his best friend. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha. If you know the Bible, you've probably heard their names as well. This was the same Mary whose brother Lazarus now lay sick. She's the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So he's out of town. He's away. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, no. It is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified in it. So there's one kind of sickness right there. A sickness for the glory of God. A sickness in which its healing will result in Jesus being lifted up. But Jesus referenced a second kind of death there, right? A sickness that leads to death. Now we know this already. You don't even have to know your Bible. All you have to do is be a student of life. Everybody dies. Everybody. And usually they die because they're sick. Healthy people hardly ever die. So Jesus acknowledges that there is a sickness that leads to death. And so is James talking about a sickness that leads to death? Well, maybe in the sense that it could lead to death if it wasn't treated by the Lord. But we just know, all I'm saying here, the point I want to make is that everybody dies. Even men and women with great faith and great trust get old, get sick, and dies. That's just a fact of life in a broken world. But James is referring to the, to the, to the other three kinds of sin, a sin caused or a, a, a sickness caused by sin or a sickness caused by disciplining for sin. So for example, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about, he tells some of the Corinthian believers that they were sick because God was judging them for taking communion in a, in a manner that was unworthy of the Lord, unworthy of the body of the Lord. And so they were sick. So James is referencing that kind of sickness, right? And then he's, he's uh, just referencing a sickness for the glory of God. So, so yeah, it's just important, I think, for us to be clear about what James is and isn't promising here. Does that make uh, sense? And then I want you to notice the last phrase of verse 16. Uh, and it's so important that we talk through this. He kind of makes a summary statement. He says, the prayer of a righteous man or woman is powerful. 
and it's effective. At which point, so many of us in the room are like, I'm out. I'm out. I, I can't pray because I'm not righteous. Like, like, I'm aware that just yesterday I said that or I did that. I'm aware that the day before I fell short in another way. I know all my failings. I know my sin. I'm aware of it. it, I, it, this, it the shame of that weighs on me. I'm not a righteous man. I'm not a righteous woman. So I'm out. I, right? This promise doesn't apply to me. But what if it did? What if the gospel makes it possible for you to approach God even when you're aware of your sin, even when you're aware of your shortcoming? What if, I'm just spitballing here, but what if it was possible for you to approach God based on somebody else's righteousness and not your own? Well, that's what the gospel says we do through Jesus, right? In other words, none of us approach God. Like, look, 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 look. Like, if you think, well, I have my quiet time today. You know, I heard God's voice today and I obeyed it. So this would be a good day for me to talk to God because I'm in, right? Because I've been good all day long. That's not the way we approach God as followers of Jesus. We don't approach God based on our sense of righteousness or unrighteousness. We approach God based on what Jesus has done for us, the righteousness that Jesus has given to us. We don't approach God out of ourselves because if we did, we'd all be dead in the water. Yeah, amen. I love that. Absolutely. In fact, there's a verse that makes this very, very clear. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. I want you to think about this verse for just a minute. God made him who had no sin. That's Jesus. He was blameless. He was pure to be sin. For who? For who? You know, in us is you. In us is me. God made him who had no sin to be sin for me so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus did that. Our Jesus, our Jesus did that for us. Which means that even though you're so aware of all the ways you fail and fall short and blow it, you can still approach God confidently in prayer, knowing that you don't wear the breastplate of your own righteousness. You wear the breastplate of the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at you, he does not see your sin. He only sees the, the, the righteousness of his son. The man who was blameless, the man who had no sin, who became sin. And by the way, he didn't just become sin in a general sense. He became your sin. He became my sin. He took those on tangibly and physically. And I want you to imagine 
how, how ashamed, just your own sin. But think that, imagine for a moment that you were bearing the, not just your sin, but the sin of the whole world. I want you to imagine the weight of that, the burden of that, the guilt of that, the shame of that. Jesus bore all of that. That's why at one point on the cross, he looked at the Father who had to turn away because Jesus was sin. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, he seemed to have forsaken him in that moment because Jesus was dressed in, in our sin. He was dressed in your sin. He was dressed in mine. And the Heavenly Father had to turn his eye to that. And then there's this incredible um, illustration of a man named Elijah. It says, Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land. For three and a half years, again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Now, the phrase that's so important there is this one, Elijah was a man just like us. So Elijah's story is found in the book of 1 Kings chapters 17 and 18. I'm just going to make some general comments. I tried to walk through his, his story in more detail in first service, um, and, but I want to be a little more concise this time. Uh, Elijah is uh, one of the uh, primary prophets of the Old Testament. He's highly revered for some of the great miracles that he did. I mean, God had provided for him miraculously in this drought. Um, he'd been sent to somebody's house to care for them and make sure that not only he got fed supernaturally, but that the woman and the son in this house got fed supernaturally. Uh, then he sent Elijah back and Elijah faced off against 450 prophets of, of, of the Canaanite religion. He faced off against 450 of these prophets of the God of Baal. And he, he does a contest with them. And he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. The 450 of you, you're going you're gonna to make a bull offering to your God. You're going to put it on wood. It'll be a burnt offering. That was the kind of offering this was. I'll make a sacrifice of a bull to my God. We'll put them on, on wood, but we won't light the fires. And so you can cry out to your God. And let's see if your God consumes your uh, sacrifice. And then um, if that doesn't work, then I'm going to call out to my God and see if he answers my prayer for a sacrifice. So we're told that from morning till night, these 450 prophets, they dance, you know, they pray, they cry out, and they get so desperate because their God's not listening. And the whole time, Elijah's taunting them, hey, maybe your God's hard of hearing. Yeah, maybe he's having a hard time getting out of his wheelchair. He's saying stuff like, like this to them, you know, just kind of taunting them. They finally get so desperate, they start cutting themselves. Like, hey, I'll be the offering. Just do, just do what we ask. Well, they, so they go and nothing happens. And then at the end of the day, Elijah prays a prayer and fire from heaven comes down. Doesn't just consume the bull doesn't just consume the wood. It, it's so hot. It's so powerful. It burns the ground, leaves uh, rocks and soil just get incinerated, leaves nothing but a giant crater. So Elijah had seen God just do these incredible things, right? Provide for him supernaturally over and over again, save other people's lives, 
through his ministry, uh, confront these 450 prophets of Baal just time and time again. And yet, over and over again in his story, Elijah doubts and uh, Elijah feels sorry for himself. At one point, so after he defeats the 450 prophets of Baal, uh, Jezebel, who's married to the king, she's the queen. She says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take your life. Hey, hey, God, you know, curse me if you're not dead by sunset. So he has to run again. And at one point, he's pouty and he just says, you know, God, I'm the only one around here. You know, I'm the only one who hasn't bowed the knee and I'm all alone and I'm all by myself. I mean, he's just feeling, he's like throwing a pity party like we all do. That means he was a man just like us. This is an incredible thing. But think about this. Elijah had fire, could send fire down from heaven. Imagine if that was a spiritual gift. Like I would take that as a spiritual gift. The problem is if, if we had that as a spiritual gift, we'd probably use it in all the wrong ways, wouldn't we? Let's be honest. Yeah, we'd probably call fire down from heaven on some people, not just the sacrifice, right? So it's probably a God thing that it's not a spiritual gift. But he's just saying, look, you may have doubts. You may feel sorry for yourself sometimes. Elijah did all that, but Elijah was also used greatly by God. And you can be too. You can be too. And this is so beautiful. Now, I want to close this way. So oddly enough, the church's response to sickness and suffering would become a major reason why Christianity would spread all over the world. There's a sociologist by the name of Rodney Stark. Uh, he's a, a sociologist of religion and a historian. He writes about how at two points in history, 165 AD and 251 AD, there were major epidemics that swept over the Roman Empire. And do you know who stepped up in the midst of those pandemics and epidemics? To give you an idea, the one in 161 AD, um, uh, like something like 60 million people died in that epidemic. I mean, it was incredible. That would be like 100 million people dying today. And Christians stepped up in the middle of that. They just stepped in to that need. So, so I want you to imagine that we were in a, in a time where maybe there's a pandemic going on. I think that rings a bell or two. And that 80 or 100 million people are dying because of something that we were powerless to stop. There are no shots. There are no vaccinations, no masks. So I want you to imagine the hysteria of that. And that was the pagan world. And the thought in the pagan world was, well, every man for himself, every man for himself. In fact, there's a Roman historian. This guy wasn't even a Christian. He's just a Roman. And he says that here's what would happen in those days. People would push sufferers away. They fled from their dearest, from their spouses. They would push parents away from their children. They would throw them into roads in front of chariots so that other people wouldn't get sick. If there was a cliff nearby, they would take family members and throw, this off, throw them off a cliff to protect everybody else in the family. And then Christians came along. 
This little community remembered that Jesus cared for and healed the sick. And they said, we're going to do what our Jesus did. And we're not going to hide from sickness and suffering. We're going to move into that. And they risked their lives, not once, but twice in early church history in the midst of these pandemics. And so here's what Stark writes about this. He says, those teachings of Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Care for widows and orphans in their distress. Whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. He says, these things were not just slogans to the early church. People actually did this stuff. Members did nurse the sick even during pandemics, even during epidemics. There was no community in the world like this community. They actually supported orphans and widows and the elderly and the poor. And this just kept going on and on. And I'll tell you what, the world was starving for this then. And I'll tell you this, the world is starving for this now. Christians should be the very first one. See, here's the thing. There is no one like our Jesus, and Jesus did not come to begin a country club. He came to found a movement, a movement of people that would move toward hurt and brokenness and suffering in our world. He came to found a movement of people that would be willing to lay their lives on the line in order to make this world a better place to live. Listen, here's one of the things this tells us. The church was never meant to exist for itself. Churches that only exist for themselves are anomalies. They're cancerous. Churches have to exist for those, not just for ourselves, but for those outside of our doors. And this is why we started ministries during a pandemic for people that are broken and hurting. And uh, yeah, you get the idea, right? That's That's a movement. That's what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to found a country club. So we started ministries like the preschool and the bridge and Shelby Supply and the Women's Bridge to Hope, which is now the Women's Journey to Hope, right? An independent ministry. All that because we believe here that we are called to be part of this movement that moves toward brokenness and suffering and not away from it. So how about you? Here's the question this morning. Are you part of the movement of Jesus or are you just moving through life? Either way, you're moving. But in one way, you're moving on your own. In the other, you're moving with Jesus and you're moving towards something. Are you part of the movement of Jesus or are you just moving through your life? Well, here's the good news. In a moment, we're going to take communion together. And as we do that, you can sign up for that movement. You can say, God, I'm aware. I remember that you offered up your body for me. You, You shed your blood for the forgiveness of sin for me, for my sin. And God, I want to obey you not to get you to do something for me. I want to obey you for what you've already done for me. I want to obey you 
obey you because you've already blessed me in your son. You've already made me a son or a daughter and put me in the heavenly places. I want to be a good son. I want to be a good daughter. I want to make my daddy proud. That's the motive of the prayers that we offer as we remember our Jesus. So uh, we're going to do that together now. You're going to notice there are tables here and in the back. We're going to invite you to come down these two aisles here. We'll serve you the bread and the cup. We want to invite you to hang on to those. You can bring them here to the altar, here to the front, or you can go back down the middle to your seat. And then, um, but we want you to keep them, hold on to them. And then I'm going to come back up and I'm going to prompt you. We're going to remember our Jesus together. Remember, this is a movement. We're part of a community. So I'm going to prompt us, and then we'll, we'll take the bread together, then we'll take the uh, cup together, and then I'm going to pray for us. But the whole point of this exercise is to remember and reflect on what our Jesus has done for us. So as you get in line to receive it, reflect on that, consider that. Our God is good, and He demonstrated that goodness, demonstrated His love for us, by dying on a cross. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your unspeakable gift. We thank you for the opportunity to remember it together. Would you do special things in our church, in our hearts, in our minds, because we worship you together in these next few minutes. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come and receive. The altar is open. Ah, 
such a beautiful thing. What we're about to do together uh, represents something that the movement of Jesus has been doing together for thousands of years uh, to commemorate and remember not only his death and burial and resurrection, but also the fact that he's coming back for us. And so remember, this is a time for us to reflect on and to remember our Jesus, the sacrifice that he made. And so, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember our Jesus together. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's remember our Jesus together once again. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's talk to our Heavenly Father together. Papa, we give you thanks. You have made us sons and daughters, children of God. You have given us the righteousness of Christ. You have strengthened us when we were sick. You've walked with us as we've been happy. You've walked us through troubles. You've always been there, and you're so good. And so we just thank you for James's message today, and we remember. We remember uh, all that you've done for us, and we give you great thanksgiving in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.